Welcome everyone to episode 94 of the Bumper Sticker Faith Podcast. My name is Sam Key and today I am joined by Dr. Thomas Millay. He is a pastor of the First Christian Church in Goldsboro, North Carolina. He's a lecturer at uh, Baylor University and a senior research fellow at the Hong Kierkegaard Library. And that's actually what I found out first about you. Uh, Dr. Malay in uh, St. Olaf College. I don't know if just in my uh, fetish with Kierkegaard <laughs> that I ran across your name, you know, over the last uh, few years on papers and whatnot. Um, but um, tell us, well, welcome to the show, first of all. Oh, I want to mention too, you have a, a few books. One we're going to be talking about today. Uh, uh, your other books, The Abased Christ, that was published in 2022, most recently. That sounds phenomenal. And then a 2021 book, Kierkegaard and the New Nationalism, equally as interesting. But today, the one I want to uh, introduce to my audience and to talk about and dig into is the book called You Must Change Your Life. I love that title. Great title. You Must Change Your Life. It's Kierkegaard and the Philosophy of Reading, published in 2020. So, Again, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Sam. Thanks so much. It's an honor to be on. And I'm not surprised that you're interested in Kierkegaard because if you're interested in critiquing superficial faith, he <laughs> is right there with you. So That's I'm right. That's right. And that's what Bumper Sticker Faith is about. Uh, I, I had my own um, superficialness to my faith uh, for a while and... Um, it took some time and effort and some years to, to help recognize that and get out of that. And I'm, and I still wrestle with that. And so along that journey for me, I went through some, yeah, some real struggles and dark nights of the soul. And I kept gravitating towards Kierkegaard and reading his books, you know, probably 70% of the time, not having a clue of what he's talking about, but still <laughs> finding when you, when you are reading along, like in fear and trembling or, uh, uh, the anxiety book too, uh, the sickness unto death. When you're reading along those, and then something finally clicks and it, it makes sense to me, it's like it really shines. Then it's really uh, memorable. And there's, um, well, we'll get into it, but there's um, um, some some sentences from his works of love book that you pick up on in your book, and those are the exact sentences that have carried me um, uh, for for years now. But um, could you tell us first, what is the Hong Kierkegaard Library? Oh, yes. Oh, thanks for asking. So that's my, actually, I was a lecturer at Baylor, but when I moved to become a pastor in North Carolina, uh, I moved away from that position. So that's sort of my academic position right now. Uh, And the Hong Kierkegaard Library, it's based in Northfield, Minnesota at St. Olaf College. St. Olaf College is famous like its choir. A lot of people have heard of its choir. Um, but that, that's about an hour away from Minneapolis. So that gives you some idea of where it is. Um, and it's basically the library, the genesis of it was through Howard and Edna Hong, who are the translators of the whole, basically the whole of Kierkegaard's works, um, journals included. Uh, they put together this massive library to do that because they wanted to basically read everything that Kierkegaard had read 
and then read all the books written about him. And then that would give them the largest context they could have for translating each of his works. So that's what they did. And then when they finished doing that, they just gave the library to St. Olaf College. And so that was the foundation of it. And it's grown since then, but that that's the real sort of genesis of it. And it is still um, a sort of center for Kierkegaard studies, especially in America. But I have met people at the library in America, the St. Olaf Library, that came from Copenhagen. And they, they have a Kierkegaard library there, but they came from Copenhagen because there are resources at the American wow. library that there weren't even there um, in Copenhagen. So it's it's quite a, a, a supportive place um, to study Kierkegaard. There's everything that you would need, and there's a lot of people there who are also interested in Kierkegaard. Every summer they have Danish language classes mm-hmm. specifically sort of targeted to reading Kierkegaard. Wow. Um, and they they have conferences and lectures and, and things like that. So um, it, it was run for a long time uh, by Gordon Marino, mm-hmm. who is he was a professor of philosophy, um, but he was also a boxing coach. Very interesting guy. <laughs> you might. Or knows Mike Tyson uh, really well. Oh, I think so. I've heard him before. Yeah. I'm gonna have to yeah, yeah look yeah. him up. Wow. Yeah. So if you ever wonder why Mike Tyson is quoting Kierkegaard, uh, <laughs> he thought he got hit yeah. too many times. <laughs> yeah. um, so he was the the head of the library for a long time, and now it's headed by Anna Soderquist, who moved uh, from Denmark to be there. Uh, and this is her first year running the library, but it's it's still going on strong and um, has had a lot. Of, yeah. It has lots of great events all the yeah. time. I wish I could be there more. Um, but and yeah, if, it's a wonderful. And if people like if if you go out to the to the store or off Amazon rather and get Kierkegaard books, the translator, as you pointed out, are the Hongs, and that's mm-hmm. what what it's named after. So so some connections for some people. So could you? Um, I guess two questions to start off. Uh, I want you to introduce us to who, to Soren Kierkegaard, who he was, you know, a little a bio of his life, but then also like, and maybe first, like, why do you love him so much? And why have you devoted so much of your life to him? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, they're related questions for yeah. me. So the reason why I am so interested in him is I grew up reading philosophy, not theology Mm. and mainly i read plato i loved plato growing up like as a high schooler and on into college and when i first encountered kierkegaard that was the first time i had read a theological voice that had the sort of philosophical depth that plato did you know (laughs) someone someone that truly a christian theologian that truly had this really interesting philosophical approach. I just found that fascinating. I didn't know it existed until I read Kierkegaard. You know, I found some further figures other than him uh, since then, but he was my first real exposure to, wow, here is someone who's a theologian that also is really interesting philosophically. He is known as the father of existentialism. Mm -hmm. So a lot of folks who... Um, haven't heard much else about Kierkegaard, have heard Kierkegaard, the father of existentialism. And I think it's a pretty good label for him. Um, he 
is the father of existentialism. The existentialism is a philosophical school that focuses on existence. And that, that sounds kind of strange to say, but it is a philosophy that is all about truth as it is lived mm -hmm. rather than truth being something that can be uh, just written down and kind of explained in numbered propositions or something like that. Mm -hmm. Truth is something that you live out in your everyday life and no other sort of truth matters. Um, so this is one of the main reasons I think to be interested in Kierkegaard is that philosophical approach that he has. Um, and he is famous for saying something that's easily misinterpreted. He says truth is subjectivity mm. in his book, Concluding Unscientific Postscript. Truth is subjectivity. And a lot of people hear, hear that and they think he's saying truth is subjective, like truth is just whatever you yeah. want it to be. Or relative, yeah. Absolute truth, yeah, or it's relative, yeah. Uh, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that at all. Um, but what he what he's saying with truth is subjectivity is he's saying there's no truth outside of lived truth. Mm -hmm. That there there's no truth that is just abstract. That's just on paper. The only truth that matters is the truth that you actually live out. And so if you say something like I'm a Christian, but are not actually living that mm -hmm. out, you don't actually believe believe that or hold that to be true or or hold the truths of Christianity to be true unless you are, unless your life reflects those claims. Well, you give a uh, great example of it uh, in the, in your book, powerful example of it in the book when Jesus in John 18, I believe is standing before Pontius Pilate and Pilate says, what is truth? And you say, Jesus is, he remains silent because he's living the truth and he's actually mm -hmm. living out I'm going to like the climax of the book right away. I apologize. But yeah. Jesus is actually living out Isaiah 53, you know, and other scriptures too, where you, you have you have the word, but the word is meant to change your life. You're supposed to act it, live it out. Um, mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I guess that's maybe the ultimate example of it, right? That's right. Yes. So Kira, he brings this up in a book called uh, For Self-Examination. And he basically says, well, Jesus doesn't answer Pilate because he himself is the answer. When Pilate asks, what is truth? Yeah. Jesus is, just sort of stands there like, it's me, yeah. <laughs> my life, what I'm living out. That is the answer. His to existence, question. use that word. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly right. So that, that really gets to the heart of Kierkegaard's philosophy, actually. Yeah, um, The existence is the primary um, the primary thing in the the primary area where truth actually matters. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, who was this guy? When did he When did he live? When did he What was yes. he, What was his stick? Why was he uh, writing against Christendom? And what is What does yeah, even that yeah. mean? Yes, that all good questions. So he he lived in the 19th century, 1813 to 1855, and that was part of what's known as the Danish Golden Age. So he lived in Denmark, uh, a tiny little nation that is close to Germany and thus close to German philosophy, um, but not part of Germany, <laughs> uh, at least not at that time. And uh, so Kierkegaard, he's, he's Danish, he's living in the 19th century, and the Danish Golden Age is it's something related to literature, like he lives at the same time as Hans Christian Andersen, uh, but it's also related to their economics at the time. They had a flourishing economy after 
They, after their economy tanked when they were in war with Napoleon, after that, uh, Denmark did really well. And that has to do with create, it has to do with a couple of things which are relevant to Kierkegaard, which is the creation of a kind of comfortable bourgeois class who lives in, in Copenhagen, uh, which is Kierkegaard's main audience. And it also is related to the fact that uh, the prosperity that, uh, the prosperity that Denmark had was built upon colonialism. So mm. uh, even though Denmark is a tiny nation, they were very involved in the slave trade and in um, taking goods from other places and selling them uh, in order to make a profit. Uh, so they were very involved in that. And so the comfort that everyone is living in in Copenhagen is uh, founded upon the um, labor intense and often unrepaid labor of others. Uh, so uh, Kierkegaard doesn't directly write about that, but it forms the context mm -hmm. for everything that he is writing about. Um, he's very interested in critiquing comfortable Christians, mm -hmm. the comfort of their lives, and they're thinking that they can be Christians if they're comfortable. So um, although, although he doesn't write much about colonialism, he thinks that the world is evil and is run by evil. And it turns out now we know even more than he did about how exactly his world was run by evil because everything that he had around him came at the price of somebody else's life. Um, so he was right. In yeah. other words, his and, world was ruled by evil. And the Christianity of his nation was tied to the nation, right? So you couldn't yeah. think about... Yeah. You couldn't think about colonialism without thinking about Christianity at the same time, right? That's right. Exactly, yes. So he lived amongst the state church, the state mm -hmm. Lutheran church in Denmark, uh, where basically citizenship and being a Lutheran Christian were one in the same thing. Mm -hmm. There was There were very small minorities of Jews and Baptists in Denmark, uh, but just very small. To be Danish was to be Lutheran, basically. And there's a, a famous scene in Concluding Unscientific Postscript where uh, there's a man who starts to doubt his Christianity. One is, am I really a Christian? My, my life doesn't really look a lot like Christ's life. So am I really a Christian? And his wife starts seeing him get worried about this. And she pulls out a map and says, well, where do we live? <laughs> we live in Denmark. What's the predominant religion there? Christianity. Well, you know, you're a good upstanding citizen in Denmark. And uh, so, of course, you're a Christian. <laughs> so that, that's the sort of uh, environment that Kierkegaard uh, was riding within, yeah. that people assumed that they were Christians. And Christianity was basically a part of, um, well, one of the illuminating things about it is Christianity was, uh, or religion in Denmark was part of the culture department. Uh, that's the ministry that oversaw churches. So oh, wow. that also included things like opera, you know, and and painting and things like that. And then religion as well. So it was a sort of, uh, religion was something that was added on to uh, a life that was already comfortable, at least for those who were living in the city. Um, so basically the idea was, we have a happy life right now. Things are going well for us, but we're worried, what, what happens when we die? Well, 
the solution that the Danish state provided was Christianity, that now you get to be happy here and now you know you get to be happy in eternity as well. We've arranged all that for you. <laughs> you know, we're taking care of this life and the next life. So wow. isn't the Danish state great? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the environment he's writing within. Um, which he calls Christendom, uh, which is basically the uniting of, of church and state. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, did everyone love Kierkegaard? <laughs> <laughs> no, every, yeah, pretty much everyone hated him. He, <laughs> for a good reason, I think he, he understood why, although he gripes about it some in his yeah. journals. Um, but he, he, as a young child, was nicknamed the Fork. And so he had this, uh, <laughs> this, part of himself from the beginning that he loved to needle people and get yeah. them caught in their own contradictions, yeah. you know, <laughs> their, own, their own difference between what they claimed about themselves and how they really lived their lives. He loved to point that out. And just like Socrates, anyone who mm. loves to point that out, people hate, you know? Mm-hmm. And so he did, he went through a period of his life where um, he was mocked by a Danish periodical and uh, there were cartoons drawn of him and he really, really couldn't go around the city at all without you know, children laughing at him and all sorts of other stuff happening to him um, because of that that sort of mockery that happened. In fact, it's reflected in the Danish language today that uh, there there came to be this character in plays who was kind of a bumbling professor type character who's named Surin. <laughs> and uh, even now today, to, if you stub your toe in danish a lot of times you'll say surins like that so it's like if you do something clumsy oh, wow. you say surins like yeah. that it's all, it comes from that wow. that mocking of kierkegaard uh, it's still present in the language itself. yeah so it, yeah he he was not well liked um and he uh he was usually ad- admired in a way but uh, for his intellect mm-hmm. but still not liked <laughs> yeah. and uh he did not really fit into any social circles especially by the end of his life um so in that's within a very he was born into the kind of aristocracy in a way although his dad was sort of a new money type person mm-hmm. born in the aristocracy of denmark in a way um and was kind of progressively exiled from all the cultural circles of Denmark throughout his life until he dies fairly well alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, yeah, that's that's uh, the social reaction yeah. to him. But yet he also connected very well with like the common people walking around the yeah. city, making sure he did his quote unquote rounds, listening yeah, to so- people, showing up at in the theater or wherever to make his presence known and um yeah like socrates again hearing mm-hmm. what the average person had to say and what they felt and those people probably would show up in one of his his books uh, as yes. a character but um, that's right he calls himself he sees himself as a he calls it kind of a police detective for christianity <laughs> and that that's part of his i love that you know he went out to go to talk to and he would talk to anybody which was yeah. notable at the time where you you know if you were someone of the class that Kierkegaard was part of, he didn't necessarily interact with, um, you know, a maid who was walking down the street, but Kierkegaard always did. But I will say he he was sort of using them for his books. And <laughs> he wanted to know how they understood everything. And then that was like his research for 
uh, or seeing how people understood Christianity and how he could sort of oppose that in his writing. So yeah. some people describe uh, talking to Kierkegaard as being sort of pumped for information. <laughs> Um, so it, he he was always talking to people though that's right he would go on two three hour long walks um he was called copenhagen's greatest peripatetic so <laughs> peripatetic yeah. someone is always walking around walking around so, yeah wow. yeah i i find it fascinating how speaking of those characters how in his books he 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 would um author them by pseudonyms um often many pseudonyms and so like even to the point where he'll he'll publish uh, a great work that's under all these you know pseudonyms under all these made up names in one day and then publish maybe a devotional book uh, a day later or something uh, you know with his name on it. Uh, yes. Just yes. amazing. Could you talk about that a little? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's a very um, it's a very worked out thing for him. A lot of people will write under pseudonyms for not very like philosophical reasons, I guess, like J.K. Rowling writing as Robert Galbraith or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think she wanted to write in another genre. Yeah. So she chose a pseudonym. Uh, for Kierkegaard, a pseudonym is a very thought out thing. Yeah. He is choosing to do that, uh, to write under other names than his own because he has a kind of educational philosophy that he doesn't want to tell people what to think. Um, and he thinks that if you do tell people what they mm. think, first of all, they won't listen because people don't like to be told <laughs> what yep. to think. And second of all, they won't have made the effort to figure out the truth for themselves. And so you actually get in the in the course of his writings, you get this variety of opinions on what Christianity is, how to live it out. Yeah. Um, in what life is all about yeah. too. And that's a way of Kierkegaard saying, you figure it out. Yeah. You know, what, what, what sense do you make of this? Right. And he thinks if you have that encounter, it will be more impactful to you that you'll have discovered something for yourself. Wow. Um, and the difficulty of doing that is inherent in the learning process. It uh, is so difficult because you're reading yes. these books like either or, <laughs> And you start the first part and you think, well, I totally agree with this. And then you mm -hmm. get to the next part, like, I agree with him too. You really yeah, do right. have to uh, put yes. some skin in the game. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So yeah. that's all part of a strategy on yeah. his part. Yeah. The, the difficulty is not, he's not unaware of the difficulty, I suppose. So one last like introduction kind of to his life question. And that is like, what was, and you kind of alluded to it a little, but what was his, did he have an overall mission or purpose? He had a short life and he gave up uh, his marriage. You know, he was engaged, but then he broke that off because he wanted to dedicate himself to this mission or purpose. But, but like, what was that? Well, he sees himself as a missional author and he directs that in, in direct contradiction to sort of how his missionaries usually understood that you send someone out uh to the world mm -hmm. like there's this famous missionary conference in edinburgh in 1910 you know where where people say in this century the christian century we're going to reach the whole world in this century now is our chance um, so sending people everywhere and kierkegaard calls himself a missionary to christendom to a country that calls itself christian <laughs> um so that's how he sees himself he sees himself as wow. trying to win people to christianity 
when they think they're already Christian, yeah. <laughs> but they are deluded and deceived yeah. into thinking that they're Christian. Yeah. Um, so it, it, and it's, it's maybe a more difficult thing to do, a more complicated thing to do to get someone to uh, see their delusion, their illusion that they're operating under, to take that away from them so that they can actually see the separation between their life and what mm-hmm. it would look like to actually follow Christ. Um, so to wake them up to that, to this uh, this difference between the way they're living and what an actually Christian life would look like, that's what he saw his mission uh, to be. And so even when he's writing on something that seems completely unconnected to that, like the book you mentioned, Either Or, he's writing about Mozart's opera, Don Giovanni. <laughs> you might think that's completely unconnected to learning to be a Christian, um, but if you read it the correct way, it's completely related to being a Christian. Don Giovanni is someone who's completely consumed with uh, the pleasures, the immediate pleasures of life. And Kierkegaard wants to show how those are ultimately empty, you know, that you consume something and it's gone and you'll always be looking for the next thing. Uh, And that even um, more sophisticated ways of being, uh, of having your whole life be about pleasure are still ultimately empty, uh, which is a point he makes further in that uh, either or book. So yeah, that's, uh, that's his, his approach. That's what drove him. That was his mission Mm -hmm. um, to awaken people um, to the true nature of Christianity and how their lives were separate from that. I find it interesting. I actually asked this question via email to, um, Stephen Backhouse who wrote the Kierkegaard, a recent Kierkegaard biography, just to pick his brain on it when I was working through it. But I, I've listened to a ton of, um, original recording Martin Lloyd Jones sermons, uh, you know, the early, uh, 20th century preacher from the Welsh preacher, and he, he Lloyd Jones, he never references Kierkegaard's name, but like I hear Kierkegaard in him all the time, all the time. And I, mm-hmm. I asked uh, Dr. Backhouse about it, but he was not aware of any connections that uh, Lloyd Jones read Kierkegaard. But um, but that's that same message that Lloyd Jones has. Like, um, are you really a Christian? Question yourself mm-hmm. is what Lloyd Jones mm-hmm. always always tried to get out, even even with his own wife. Um, she mm-hmm. was one of the, if I remember correctly, one of uh, a converted under his preaching ministry because she, she mm-hmm. wasn't she wasn't so sure. So, mm-hmm. this book that you wrote, a fine fine little book, uh, inspiring, um, so many so many nuggets, uh, so so, much, so many good things in this. But it's called "You Must Change Your Life," Soren Kierkegaard's philosophy of reading, and um, you asked this very basic question, which I've you know, I've never really asked myself this, but what is the purpose of reading? Mm-hmm. And um, Kierkegaard thought that you could actually miss the mark, quote unquote, and that's the, the language we, we use for sin, in other words. He thought you could actually miss the mark uh, if you read w- with the wrong goal. So I guess start. let's start with that. What's the purpose of reading? And then bring well, Augustine in if you want. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So you're, you're right that it's a question we don't often ask. And there, in fact, are not a lot of books about this specific question. So there are, there are so many great books on sort of how to read how, a book. Yes. Yeah. And what, yeah, there's a famous book called How, how to, to Read, read a, a Book. book. <laughs> Morton Radler, there's right? Like, um, 
Karen Swallow Pryor, I would say, is a really good author within Christian spaces on sort of what to read and why you should mm-hmm. read these specific books. But there's precious little on why you should read in general. So, so why why this is an important thing to do uh, that, and what its purpose is. <laughs> so that's, that's the question I had coming into this book was to try to provide some sort of answer to that. Um, it, thinking especially of people, maybe you're about to enter college or something, you're about to do a lot more reading or seminary maybe, uh, you're about to do a lot more reading than you've done previously in your life. So why why do that? You know, why spend all this time uh, hunched over a book? Mm-hmm. And Kierkegaard does, he's very intentional about providing an answer to that, usually in little prefaces that are um, that come before his writing. He sort of tells you why you should read um, and how it might be beneficial to you. So he, uh, like like you mentioned, he he basically inherits his theory of reading from St. Augustine. Uh, and St. Augustine in the Doctrina Christiana is the, the work to find this in, or on Christian teaching. Uh, he lays out a theory of why you should read. And his theory, to put it very basically, is that you read to increase your love of God, that that is the purpose of reading. And he's willing to claim that if you're not reading for that purpose, you're reading wrongly. You know, you're not using this tool that we have for its proper purpose. Um, so reading in order to increase your love of God, that's why we have this tool. That's why we do this task of reading. Um, and so that's that's sort of the ultimate aim to keep in mind uh, whenever you do this activity mm-hmm. of reading. And what I really like about Kierkegaard is he modifies Augustine in a sense. So he takes up that theory of reading for Augustine, but Augustine is quite worried about different types of literature. So he is uh, he is someone who's going to encourage you basically just to read scripture and theologians, yeah. maybe some philosophers, but he's very worried about uh, going to the theater, for example, seeing a drama. Uh, he's worried about imaginary stories that are made up. Like there's a famous critique of the Aeneas and Dido story Mm. in Confessions. He's worried about that sort of thing. What's wonderful about Kierkegaard is he has no worry about that at all. And the the piece that I'm working from in the book, uh, which is the introduction to a long book review he wrote called On Two Ages, um, in that introduction, he calls novels a place of prayer. Mm. So that's a very different approach than... Mm. Uh, Augustine being suspicious of fictitious stories. Yeah. For Kierkegaard, novels are a place of prayer. But he also, he was widely read in science, and he was actually distantly related to Hans Christian Ørsted, who's a famous uh, scientist of electromagnetism, uh, discoveries with respect to that. So he was very Im- involved in different types of literature. He loved to read poetry and novels, fairy tales, and sci- scientific literature. And Kierkegaard thought that this theory of reading applied to all of that, that it wasn't limited in the way that Augustine thought. That he thought you could read a paper on, uh, you know, how cells work, <laughs> cellular biology, mm-hmm. and be able to, to have that paper increase your love of God, that you could read anything for the love of God. That was, that was his theory. That's why I think he's an important 
person modifying Augustine. Mm-hmm. Or else I suppose we could say, just say, just go back and read Augustine. <laughs> but here are changes to him, I think, in a really good and important way. Is that because, um, like, when you're reading a novel or fiction, you're you're placed within, it's, it's more of, it's getting to what eventually gets to. You're placed in a specific context. It's more, it's more embodied, right? And so you find yourself in these novels and these scenes and situations where you get to see now how can I act out, live out my yeah. faith, right? That's right. It's a sort of imaginative engagement with the very world you see around you. And it helps you, reading novels in Kierkegaard's mind, it helps you deal with um, both the successes and failures of your life. You get to see how people negotiate success and failure in a novel. And sometimes success is really ruinous for people. It ruins their spiritual nature. And you can learn that from novels. And you can, while you're reading the novel, ask yourself questions about that. Like, is that happening to me? And the same with failure. It helps you see that, uh, especially one of the novels he was reading, someone has uh, a kind of unrequited love over many years. But they, kind of like Kierkegaard's own life, they maintain that love in their inner being for this other person. And he... Uh, is able to he's able to I think grapple with that unrequited love in his own life by reading this novel and realizing that there can be a sort of contentment uh, that you work out within yourself over time coming to accept uh, that there is still spiritual growth that can come even from disappointment and failure and things like that that you see how someone can do that over the years through a novel. A novel can show you that. So, yeah, he thinks that all sorts of important spiritual lessons can come from novels. section about uh, where you use examples from his book, Works of Love. Um, But then you say that, you you note these two terms, conceptual clarity versus deliberation. And Mm -hmm. then you move into the the works of love to kind of of show what that's about. But what's the difference when it comes to reading between conceptual clarity and deliberation? Uh, Well, I he, he, I think, deliberation is for him on the way to conceptual clarity. It's something you okay. do to arrive at conceptual clarity. Uh, and to him, this is really important. Uh, conceptual clarity is very important because it is related to the way we live our lives. So if you have a sort of fuzzy conception of love, mm-hmm. if you have not really defined that for yourself, then that's going to affect how you live. Unless you're reminding yourself, and unless you have, this is where the mind is still important for Kierkegaard, unless you have in your mind a definition of love that is truly universal, that every person you encounter deserves a response of care and love from you. Unless you have that uh, worked out in your mind, 
that will cause you to live a life that is easier for you, where you just do what's convenient for you mm. rather than living according to a true definition of love, where you know that you're called to go beyond what's just convenient for you to a truly universal practice of love. Mm. So that's that's where the conceptual clarity is important. It's important to get these things right in your mind because it affects how you live out your life. And he, he's sort of saying the... the um, fuzziness, the the unclarity about what love is, that's related to not living a faithful life. That you, Your motivation and not coming to clarity on it is because you actually don't want to live that more challenging life. So yeah. you might you might have a fuzzier idea of love because you don't actually want a clearer idea because you know it would change the way you live. Yeah. And you mentioned the two, two Danish words for love, Elskov and Kierleid. Not sure if I said that yes, yes, uh-huh. the yes, right way, um, but one that the Elskov is more of that um, self-love ultimately, and mm-hmm. the other one, cure like, is um, more unconditional uh, love of of neighbor, right? Yes, yes, that that's right. Yes, so um, he he does make this distinction, and. Um, There's a good argument by a friend of mine uh, named Carl Hughes, who is going to say that um, usually um, the this Danish word Elskov is related to the Greek word eros, which is like desire. You know, that's the word Greek word for love as desire. But uh, my friend Carl Hughes, he says that these two are not really equivalent, and that. what Elskov in Danish means is more like romantic love. Uh, the, the, it is about you have this attachment to one person uh, and you would basically let the whole rest of the world burn if you were able to maintain this relationship with just this one person. You know, the whole rest of the world doesn't matter to you. It's just this one. Uh, and you would sacrifice everything okay. else for that. And uh, so... Kierlehead is that is that Christian agape. It is the call to go beyond just the person you're naturally attached to. You know, the, so a person that you have a sort of natural affinity for, uh, that you're drawn to, attracted to. Uh, that Kierlehead is to use your spirit to go beyond just the natural attractions we have as animals, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, to go beyond that to realizing things that go against your natural inclination. Uh, You might not want to engage with the person who's fallen by the roadside Mm -hmm. and looks beat up and you don't know them and uh, they might be out to to do you harm, et cetera. There's all sorts of reasons why you might be naturally averse to that person, but you are still called to go help them (laughs) according to this agape type of love. So that, that, is exactly the um, the uh, conception of love Kierkegaard's working with. So I think it's not unfamiliar to many to many Christians. Yeah. Now the part that uh, you move into next, and this is the quote that ha- that I I scribbled on a napkin. <laughs> I put on another piece of paper. I have it. I look at it um, all the time. And and I hadn't seen anyone else bring this quote out before before, but you did. And it's this definition of what love is. And I, and I speak about this in like small groups that I'm in or just in conversation. 
it it helps me to i don't know it's it's it always provides me the way forward and it's this uh, christianity teaches that love is a relationship between a person with god at the center and another person and then the quote is this to love god is to love oneself truly and then to help another person to love god is to love that other person and to be helped by another person to love god is truly to be loved and that for mm-hmm. me like that's that's 100% clarity um mm-hmm. and and again it, it works it helps me to work through ethical issues whether uh, uh how to just act <laughs> live out my faith in life you know it's i don't know i love that quote i'm glad you you put that in there, but could you uh, reflect more on that quote yourself? Yes. So he sort of has a, a a model of rather than just person to person, if you put a dash between them, person loves another person, mm-hmm. he always wants to put God in between that relationship. So it would be person, God, person. Uh, and so God is always involved uh, in his mind in every human love relationship. So loving another person would go beyond just helping them as a person. It would always involve helping that other person to love God, Mm -hmm. pointing them toward God in whatever way you can, uh, whatever is at your disposal that you would point away from yourself towards God. And his conviction is that that's ultimately what will truly help that other person, because that's the most important, significant thing you can do is uh, come to a deeper, fuller relationship with God. So if you're truly concerned about someone else, that's what you want for them, right? You Mm -hmm. want them to to love this person, God, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that is not you. Uh, So there is a certain um, recognition, too, of the individuality of the other, that they they are not just a person for you. Mm-hmm. They have their own self and their own relationship to God, and that that is what is most significant for them, and not just the relationship with you. Wow! And the best thing that I can do for you is to help you to love God. And the best thing that you can do for me is to help me to love God. I mean, this comes out in my marriage relationship quite often, and my wife mm-hmm. is fantastic about this, and I and this has helped me to reframe it when she is um, saying things that are hard to hear, and but they're true in the sense that she's just helping me to love God more. She's helping me to put God first. And it's like, she she truly is loving me. And when I do the mm-hmm. same for her, I, I, I truly am uh, loving uh, her as well. And then when you're raising kids too, I mean, this cuts through, just think about the implications of this. Uh, it just cuts through so much, uh, so many mm-hmm. questions. Uh, because we're helping our kids to love God and maybe denying our kids X, Y, and Z, if it helps them to love God is, is the right thing. But again, it's just a, a very handy thing for people to hold on to. So that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So the goal of um, knowledge, what is the goal of knowledge? It's, it's transformation, right? And of, of reading, that's the goal of reading too, is, is to be uh, transformed. So, so comprehension is not the goal of reading. Now, when I read that, it's like that is our world of AI and the internet in our pockets today, 100%. We just think our ability to comprehend, 
and to know a bunch of stuff and to be able to calculate things quickly, like, like that's, that's knowledge, Mm -hmm. but that's, Mm -hmm. that's not even close, is it? (laughs) No, that's right. That that would be maybe the first step toward okay. knowledge. That's what Kierkegaard would say. Yeah. And there's a there there's a scholar named Christopher Barnett who's at Villanova that's written a whole book on. It's called Kierkegaard and the Question Concerning Technology, and he has a whole oh, chapter on Google wow. and Kierkegaard. You know, and and he's very yes. much making that same point that you know to collect a bunch of facts. You know, how much difference does that actually make for how you go about the course of your life. Mm-hmm. There, mm-hmm. there are precious few facts that you can hold on to and actually make a difference in how you live. And that's what Kierkegaard would have us be focused on, is those things that can actually make a difference. And he, just like Augustine, he's against uh, curiosity, which would be pursuing knowledge for the sake of comprehension, but about things that would maybe that that never that may entertain you mm-hmm. but don't actually change the way you're living that's the way augustine would describe what he calls the vice of curiosity which is a funny thing to say in yeah. the modern world everyone thinks curiosity is great but he means that sort of where where you are interested in something um ju- just to be entertained by it or to be to be uh able to present yourself as a knowledgeable person to others yeah. <laughs> uh, all those things where you are not actually interested in making that, making what you learned a part of your life and having it increase your love of God and having it help you love others and show them how to love God. Everything that is beyond those concerns would be the, the bad kind of curiosity yeah. in Kierkegaard and Augustine. So um, that's right. That's the, the, though it seems strange to say, that's why they're kind of against comprehension as being the the purpose of of uh reading or knowing but, okay so you're a pastor i'm gonna have you put on i'm gonna ask you a pastoral question as far as your role and what you did let's just cut cut the the bs that's bumper stickers <laughs> um you, like you know this right you know uh, this thing that kirkgaard is saying but yet in your congregation and congregations all over there are people who think that the more scripture they read, the more they're able to have their doctrine straight and to know what reformed is versus <laughs> whatever. Uh, the more knowledge that they have, the more impressive they'll be, and the more, and they may not even want to say this out loud, but we think it. Um, they, we really believe that God is more impressed, that we're better Christians, better believers with that, with having more, you know, knowledge, knowing, memorizing more scriptures than that. So how as a pastor, I mean, really actively, do you seek to work against this, um, I think, toxic mentality in your own people? Like, do you have to, oh, wow. like, for instance, yeah. I, because I, I was there thinking, I mean, uh, 10 years ago, thinking that the more knowledge and that I'm just a better, better person because of it. And my life became so disintegrated, like split apart between the embodied, you know, true self and, you know, this just head knowledge kind of version of Sam, this bumper sticker version of Sam. And it it took me going to therapy for years and my therapist saying to me one day, um, and they had never read Kierkegaard before, but Kierkegaard is like the best therapist, I think. But they said, Sam, you, we were telling you, you have to stop reading. (laughs) 
Like we prohibit you from reading anymore until you can sit there and give us uh, like what you're really thinking, what you're really feeling. We don't want you to just continue to give us the quote unquote right answers. What you think we want to hear, what you think God wants to hear, what you think everybody else wants to hear, what you think you need to say. But from that standpoint, so that's why I'm saying like to you as a pastor, how do you encourage your people in this way? Oh, that is that is such a great question. I think it is it's the the challenge as a pastor of constantly calling people back to the purpose of an activity. Or what what does this serve? So here you are reading and learning about maybe systematic theology, you know, and you think you have uh, increased your comprehension of God. <laughs> Uh, in a way, and you know what should be believed about God, and you're trying to get people on board with that. Well, the question would be, how did what you learn increase your love of God? Mm. So so how did what you learned about God increase your love of God? Mm. Has it increased your love of God, or do you just know more about God? Do you comprehend more about God? And then, of course, there's a problem of, you know, uh, that that's, of course, conceptual idolatry as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thinking comprehended God. Yeah. It's like, it, am I more yeah. lovable now or, yeah. or or do I love God more? That's the the two, right? Yes, that's right. So you have to, I think as a pastor, it's trying to, it's that ever challenging art of trying to teach people to be discerning about themselves and their motivations. So why did I go and read this book? on systematic theology. Um, For what purpose did I I do that? And did what I learn, is it still serving that correct purpose? Mm -hmm. Uh, Or has it become about me now (laughs) and my knowing things and my ability to stand over others and tell them uh, what to think, what to do, et cetera. So, So has the motivation become skewed somehow? Um, and, and how are you placing yourself in relation to other people? Um, are you still on the same level as them where you are still trying to do the same task of increasing your love of God? Or have you reached some new level where you can show them, uh, uh, show them the way by lecturing them, I guess, on what they should think. Um, and, and I think we can, we can learn from Kierkegaard a lot, a lot about that. The most important thing being that doesn't work. You know, yep. a, you can't lead other people to God by telling them what to think about God. Um, you, you can try to show them uh, the consequences of different beliefs about God, how you see them playing out, but that will always just be you trying to show them things. It sh- it should not go along with the sort of uh, judgmental, you need to get this right like I do, or there will be consequences mm-hmm. for you. That's just a misunderstanding of Christianity and within Christianity, mm-hmm. the purpose of knowledge. Uh, the purpose of knowledge is not salvation. You know, <laughs> um, we, we already have salvation yeah. and knowledge is a furtherance of that yeah. salvation, uh, God. So there need be no judgment about any of yeah. these things. Yeah, and you're not accepting yourself too, in the sense of, in the sense of you, you don't realize how accept how like what that's the kind of salvation that God has given you. That self that you 
hate, <laughs> that you despise, that you think is unworthy, like that's the self that God saves and loves. He he doesn't mm-hmm. save this 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 the bumper sticker version of yourself, the false version, the carefully crafted version, but he saves you. He really saves you. And so like mm-hmm. he makes it safe for you to be you then. You don't have to fake it. You don't have to put on these things. Um, mm-hmm. He makes it safe for you to be you and experience true love and true grace. And that's that's one of the, uh, I guess, dangers that flows out of that for me. So mm-hmm. um, you talk about appropriation, and this is part of it too. Um, and you give an example of, um, I mean, it could be like, from Second Samuel um, chapter twelve, when Nathan confronts um, mm-hmm. um, King David, and Nathan tells a story, you know, a story. He's like reading a story, right? And um, David could just hear the story and you know be entertained by it, or maybe um, judge the other person, feel superior or better about it. But David, by God's grace, moves into a different place, um, what Kierkegaard calls appropriation. Um, and, and this is like another little microcosm of what this process looks like. So could you talk about that? Yes. So appropriation is just taking what's outside of you and making it yours. So you do that with food, right? But you can also do it with what you hear or read. And that's exactly what David does uh, in that shift that happens in that story. So Nathan is telling him this story about someone who is very wealthy but didn't want to uh, didn't want to sacrifice and eat a lamb that he had. Instead, he went out and took a poor man's lamb, the only lamb that poor man had, sacrificed that lamb and ate that instead. And David, you know, he he seems to be enraptured by this story and then he's incensed by it, right? So he wants to judge this person and have them condemned. And that's the moment Nathan says, you are the man. <laughs> you are that person. And that, that is what causes David to have this shock of recognition, you know, to realize that that wasn't just a story outside of me. It's my story. Yeah. And I'm the one that needs wow. to change. Wow. That's, uh, that's that moment that happens. And I think that happens for, that's what makes scripture scripture. Every scripture should be like that for us. And I think that's a process that can happen over and over again when you're reading the Bible is not realizing how something uh, applies to your life and can make a difference in how you live. And then having a moment where you're like, oh, my goodness, that's Mm -hmm. how that's where I am in this story. And that's That's how I that's what Kierkegaard means by subjective, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. When he says subjective, you're the subject of this story. Subject. You need to make it matter to you. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm How, I mean, that is so, in our day and age, and, and it's not just scripture that says you are the man, you are the woman, but I think we need to learn to read all of our media and hear all of our news stories in this way instead of, I mean, there's so many, there's so many news stories from different political views or different sides of the fence, whatever, where, where we're tempted to just jump right on it and say, how, how? How could they? How dare they? They're so wrong. But even in those, we need to learn to appropriate the opposite view and say, no, I'm that person too in some way, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. We we definitely live in a spectacle culture that loves to be entertained by 
things that it sees as horrible and wrong without realizing the, the great repressed truth of our generation is that, yeah, we are those people. You know, we have that hatred out of our own hearts as well. We we see someone has done something very bad. Well, you have that same potentiality within yourself, whether you want to admit it or not. I think that's that's absolutely the case. And so that, yes, that would be that would be something we're constantly in denial about. And because we live in such a media saturated culture, it's even increased over time. And I can't see it decreasing, yeah. you know? <laughs> so it is, it is a constant, um, uh, it's going to be a constant battle for us, I think, going forward yeah. that realizing you are the same as this person <laughs> yeah. that you are othering and making so horrible. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. I was, so I was inspired this morning. Uh, you said that among Kierkegaard's favorite Bible verses were in the book of James. And so I decided mm-hmm. to um, slowly read, you know, start to read James this morning as part of my uh, uh, devotional time. And I got, you know, to barely into the first chapter, but um, I want to touch on that slow reading, you know, in just a minute though. But um, I got to this verse in James 1, uh, 14, it says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then the desire when it's conceived gets, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. But, you know, slowly, you know, meditating, reading that, he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Like all those sins out there, all those things, they're all in me. That, that's me. Like my own desire is doing that. And I thought, okay, well, let's play this out. Let's say you're tempted by looking at porn. And you say, well, you know, the, the computer tempted me. This ad that popped up tempted me. This whatever else is going on tempted me. But James is saying, no, that's your own desire that's doing that. You're, mm-hmm. you're projecting, you know, that's a psychological term. You're projecting that, making it like the computer's fault or somebody else's fault. But that's wrong. So then I imagine, okay, imagine I'm out in the woods and I see a stick on the ground. Now, that stick in, in no way is, is um, like tempting me or doing anything. It's just an inanimate object, right? It's not doing anything to me. And if I were to suddenly like, quote unquote, lust after the stick, someone would look at me and say, that's clearly all inside Sam, because that's just an inanimate object. That's just a stick. It's all coming from him. Well, the, the computer or phone or whatever sin we're caught up in, that's just an object, just like the stick is just an object. And any kind of sin that comes out of that is coming from inside me, you know, my own desire. And I'm throwing that on there. And 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 using that so mm. powerful stuff when you slow down <laughs> i think that's so important because we do you know we can talk about the new challenges we face with smartphones computers constant access to everything media saturated culture etc we can talk about that even pastors can talk about mm. that in a way that makes us seem helpless yeah. to all those things. When you're exactly right, what they're doing is uh, using desires that are already there within you. Mm-hmm. And uh, they may be playing an active role in facilitating those desires, mm-hmm. but they were already there. And you have to figure out how to deal with that and figure out where it's coming from. Like, mm-hmm. where does where does that uh, desire for a quick fix 
come from? A momentary pleasure. Where does it? Where does that come from within my heart? Where, you know? And uh, there's um, uh, the, to go beyond Kierkegaard for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there's uh, a medieval theologian named Julian of Norwich who is going to point to uh, our lack of acceptance of our own salvation. Mm. But it's, that's the deepest rooted issue that leads us to all that sin. Basically, we, we don't fully believe that God would save us. And so we reach out for pleasures of the moment because we think, well, this life is going to be my only chance right. to get anything good because, you know, I, I don't really believe that I am saved. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't really believe that I'm accepted and welcomed by God. Uh, and, and I don't trust that. And that's why I act out in this way. So there can be these really deep issues that are at stake in these very sort of superficial behaviors. You know, I think that's that's absolutely true. We shouldn't we should never make it seem like we are. um we should never make it seem like we are helpless in the face of new temptations or new objects that facilitate temptations. Yeah. Um, there, there's a whole long Christian tradition that helps us diagnose our own heart and lets us uh, have self-examination, as Kierkegaard would put it, about our behaviors, mm-hmm. figure out where they're coming from and how to how to address them. So I, I think that's a, that's a great point about where does that desire come from? Comes from us. It doesn't yeah. <laughs> we are not victims yeah. in that way? Yeah. And I'm mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that you know those desires are that they're bad. You know they they can be bad, but right. you you definitely are trying to meet perhaps a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So yeah. just for that. But yeah. as we um, come to a conclusion, I want to. Um, I want to touch on this briefly because this this was very important for me because I'm an incredibly slow reader, and you actually say that this is what Kierkegaard brings out too. He says he encourages people to read slowly. That we're so, um, and it goes all into that head knowledge and getting more information kind of drive that we have superficial drive we have. Uh, but you say read slowly, uh, mm-hmm. meditatively. Uh, talk more about that. Yes. So this is all about making, this is where he goes from the why, why do we read, to how we read. So if we're reading to increase our love of God, what is the most effective way to do that? The most effective way to increase your love of God through reading is not to read as quickly as you can, as many books as you can, so you can learn as much as you can in that kind of broad sense, broad sense of learning, all all these different authors, etc., if you are reading in a way that matches up with the purpose of reading, you'll be reading slowly because you have to be chewing on things. Mm. You have to be thinking about things, thinking about how does this actually make a difference for me? That takes time to think through. And so you can't just breeze past everything. You have to, he has three directives to read slowly, read repeatedly, and read aloud. Yeah, you know? I love that. These are things that you should be doing. That's the how, if you agree with him about the why mm-hmm. of why we're reading. That's the how to do it. Um, because otherwise, it's so easy to read in a way that doesn't affect you. Mm-hmm. Um, the, these are the ways you read if you want it to actually change mm-hmm. your life. Yeah. Um, so, the, those are the, so we should never be ashamed of being slow readers. <laughs> <laughs> we, we are doing... Um, uh, what Kierkegaard would have us do. Yeah. Well, it was funny <laughs> when I was reading that 
that when when I started to read that chapter at the beginning of the chapter, you started to you know, build this case for it. And my, I got sidetracked with something in my mind and it inspired something in my mind based on what you wrote. And I just had to pause. I like writing poetry and a poem came to my mind and I sat there and I started writing this poem. And then I went back to finish the paragraph and it was a paragraph in which you said, sometimes you just have to pause and journal for a little bit or to pray about a truth. And I was like, wow, that's exactly what I just got done doing. And I, and I was ashamed of it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's great. There, there is such a pressure on us um, to be uh, efficient, you know, and that pressure is there on pastors too. I mean, all sorts of yeah. uh, corporate world language has invaded the pastoral space. Yep. And uh, there, there's this, you know, I, I think a to-do list can be a good thing for a pastor, but ultimately this is spiritual labor that can't be quantified. Uh, and we we shouldn't be ashamed of taking the time to to do those things and to, uh, you know, to, to say, maybe I'm going to read one or two less books in my life, but I'm going to read them deeply and they're going to change me. Yep. And uh, I'm going to take this this wonderful opportunity I have to read. I am going to not let that opportunity go by. I'm going to have it actually mean something. You know, that's that's uh, that's what stopping to write a poem does. I think <laughs> um, you, you remember you, know, you, are, you are taking a further step on the meaning something in your life. You know, so yeah. that's great. So um, two more things, I guess. Um, briefly um one is you do bring out at the uh, at the end some flaws in Kierkegaard's philosophy about and it was it Gregory of Nazianzus uh, mm -hmm. an orthodox guy um so you you um provide you know a helpful critique um by sharing what he thought but what did what did you glean from St. Gregory well that that's great. Thank you. So, there, yes, I'm not, this is not a wholesale endorsement of Kierkegaard on every point in the book. I am critical of him on one point, and that is, I'd say he has, Kierkegaard was writing in a context where everyone was all about comprehension. Uh, the philosophy of his age was called speculative philosophy, uh, and he comes at it at Completely the op he sort of takes completely the opposite track where he says everything should be about action yeah. as soon as you know what to do you should set down the book and go out and do it yeah. <laughs> that's what Kierkegaard says and I think there's a lot of truth to that there's something we can learn from that but it is a little bit too one-sided and the reason why I think it's one-sided is because when you are someone who comes to enjoy enjoy reading like you go to reading for pleasure yeah that actually changes who you are as a person. There's change already happening as you're sitting down to read. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you must change your life. It does that change in life doesn't happen just when mm. you step out the door. Got it. There is, you become a person who's entertained by reading, mm -hmm. and that is a very significant change in a lot of people's mm. lives um, because you are being entertained by you, you. You are getting pleasure from something that is challenging that can. Um, affect you in all sorts of ways other media cannot uh and that you you have become this different sort of person um by the very fact of enjoying reading mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I think that's what gregor nazianzus this um 
this early church theologian brings out that there there are these things that are holy pleasures mm -hmm. you know there there are moments of sabbath and relaxation that speak to uh your character as a person and can change your character as a person um based on what you enjoy you yeah. know so you find yourself enjoying different things you find yourself a different person that's yeah. what gregory's going to say yeah. so that would be my one small critique of your <laughs> i like it i love it and it, it probably depends on your context too. Like if you're a, a white collar guy and you're maybe reading and ingesting all kinds of information all day, maybe at the end of the day, you just need to go for a hike, you know, mm -hmm. spend time outside and be balanced that way. Or if you're more working with your hands, blue collar, and you don't have the opportunity to read during the day at night, maybe that's what you need to do um, for yourself, for, for your own enjoyment. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I want to recommend highly that people go and get uh, your book, uh, You Must Change Your Life, Dr. Thomas Millay. Please, guys, go get that. It's a wonderful, wonderful little book that you can meditate on. It's not very long. Um, but what, um, what Kierkegaard books or essays or resources would you recommend for people to get started on if they're interested? Because there's a lot of hard and confusing stuff out there, obviously, but... Yeah. And it's worth it for sure. But where would you direct people? Oh, very good question. I would say start with Fear and Trembling. If you're reading Kierkegaard, that's a book by Kierkegaard called Fear and Trembling. He has great titles, like you mentioned earlier. Yeah. So Fear and Trembling, Sickness unto Death, Concept of Anxiety, Either Or. Yeah. <laughs> amazing yeah. titles. But I would say start with Fear and Trembling. Not that you would understand it the first time reading it. I certainly don't understand that book. But it is the most striking book, like how it starts. It starts with these reimaginings of the Abraham story mm -hmm. when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac. What Kierkegaard is asking, what is going through Abraham's mind at that moment? Mm -hmm. And uh, and he reimagines the story in different ways, the motivations of Abraham as he's doing this. Mm -hmm. And it's the most I think it's the best way to show the power of Kierkegaard as a writer, what you can get from him, you know, this. Uh, the sense of entering into the biblical text and entering into uh, what would it have been like to actually yeah. be that. Person. He has these great gifts as a writer and leading you into that. So I would say start with that book, Fear and Trembling, not expecting that you'll understand mm -hmm. every word in it, but getting a sense of who Kierkegaard is. And the second book I would recommend by Kierkegaard is it's not as well known as Fear and Trembling. It's called For Self-Examination. Mm -hmm. We mentioned it a bit earlier, but it's a great book in terms of it distills uh, how Kierkegaard thinks you should read the Bible, basically. <laughs> um, it's a really great example of that, that you read you read the Bible for self-examination, that it's something that should uh, question your life, uh, that you should always be saying, this text is about me, mm -hmm. you know, it, text is about my life, even even if it's a genealogy or something, you know, mm -hmm. there's a, there is a way to connect it to your life. And in that way, Kierkegaard is connected to the early church theologians who were always doing the same thing. He really brings that back into theology in an important way. Um, so I, I think those, those two books are great. And that's also where Kierkegaard is writing about James and he's writing about scripture as a mirror within which mm -hmm. you see yourself. Um, that it, It's just a, a great book very well written. It's also short. It's about a hundred pages. Okay. Fear and Trembling is also about a hundred. Both of them are, are short books. Um, and that, that one for self-examination is more comprehensible. It's more easily understandable. So 
I would definitely recommend that. Um, then as far as books about Kierkegaard, where to start? I would say the, the fellow you mentioned earlier, Stephen Backhouse. Stephen Backhouse yeah. His biography of Kierkegaard is wonderful. It really reads well, reads like a novel, and you get... Kierkegaard did have a very interesting life. He did. Like you, you mentioned earlier, just to give one brief example of his interesting life, like he went out, he would be writing these books all the time, but he didn't really want people to know that he spent all this time writing books. So he would go to the opera house at intermission and he would go interact with all the people who were there and say, oh, didn't you like the way so-and-so sang this, etc." But during the whole show, he was just at home writing, you know, so he lived he was a very kind of intentionally secretive and deceptive person in some ways, but he saw it all as having a, a spiritual purpose, uh, this deceiving that he was yeah. doing. Uh, but he, he just was a fascinating person, like worth reading about his life, you know, and Backhouse does a great job of that. So that's that's what I would recommend is where to, where to start with books written about Kierkegaard. Good. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on Bumper Sticker Faith today. Uh, for joining us. I was really looking forward to this because I love Kierkegaard so much. And like for listeners too, as you're picking up some of these suggested uh, books that we just recommended, one strategy that I did when I started working through some of these is I would read through like Fear and Trembling, for instance, and then I would go find like uh, an essay like that someone, a, a, a modern has written about that, and, you know, to give me s some hints and some helps or or go find a YouTube video of a lecture on that work too for 30 minutes or whatever and then go back to it and read it again and you'll be surprised how much it comes to life then. Yes, you're absolutely right. Well, there's there's a great book on Fear and Trembling by the person I wrote my dissertation under, Paul Martins. It's okay. just called Reading Fear and Trembling. Wow. It really gives you a sense of um, this is a book written about how... So Abraham... He's commanded to sacrifice Isaac, right? Uh, that, according to uh, the defini every definition of being a good social citizen, is murder. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so how does, how does that, within the context of faith, become an admirable thing that he goes and does this? And Kierkegaard is using that story, in a sense, to say being a Christian is not the same thing as being a respectable citizen. Mm. Two very different things, in fact. And you can see that in the Abraham story. That's so that, that is not readily apparent, I think, the first time you read Fear and Trembling, that that's what he's saying. Yeah. But that's what he's saying. And so Paul Martins is a great scholar for bringing out that meaning of Fear yeah. and Trembling. Yeah. And that's a, kind, that's a kind of life that you'll live um, when you put God first <laughs> rather than other that's things right. in this world. It might be, yeah. It, yeah. Might, it might be a little strange. Yeah. 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 Well, good. Thanks again for coming on the show today. Again, this has been episode 94. If anyone wants to learn more, you can go to bumperstickerfaith.com. Uh, we're on uh, Instagram, maybe Facebook, I think, too. So um, you can check check us out more. We also have uh, a BS crew. That's a bumper sticker crew where you can support uh, this podcast and this ministry to help us continue to bring amazing guests like Dr. Tom Millay on the show. We really would appreciate it. You can sign up. You, you can give like one-time gifts or uh, an ongoing monthly gifts, small gifts. That would really uh, be helpful. So I just wanted to mention that. I don't always mention it. And uh, I re-listen to these episodes. And I'm like, wow, you never sold yourself at all. 
So uh, it's important to do that from time to time. So thanks, everybody, uh, for listening. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.